Kassat Podcast Network. In this episode, Paul and Amy really focus on the motivation piece of motivational interviewing. They also cover language of ambivalence, softening sustained talk, and much more. Want to ask our host a question or share your thoughts about any episodes you've listened to? Contact us at the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at nfartech.org forward slash MI podcast. Again, that's N-F-A-R-T-E-C dot org forward slash M-I podcast. Lions and Tigers and Bears, M-I an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. And we've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI. We're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Hey, Paul. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to talk to you again. You too. So this is episode nine. Absolutely. And our topic today is motivation change talk and sustain talk, the language of ambivalence. Mm, Sounds deep. Yeah. And I'm really glad we're talking about motivation because it's central to the practice of motivational interviewing, hence the name motivational interviewing. So- Mm. So I think having an opportunity to focus on motivation and how that relates to change talk and sustained talk and ambivalence uh, will be a helpful topic to discuss. I agree. I was thinking a lot about terminology that we use around motivation and what we think. And um, I know that we're going to talk a, a lot about what motivates people and and. I'm also curious about what do you think when a person doesn't seem motivated? And then whatever do you think about that? What do you do? And I think that it's important to really, uh, we'll talk about navigating Mm -hmm. these waters um, and our thoughts and our beliefs around these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because to me, maybe a starting place for that uh, because mm-hmm. you're kind of laying out some other aspects of motivation that we'll talk about and, right. and how we can use motivational interviewing to help strengthen motivation. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I'll just throw this out for your consideration, is that maybe a, a, a solid starting point uh, for this conversation about motivation is to talk about sort of the worker or the provider's perspective on motivation. Uh, 
because I don't know about you, but I've heard oftentimes people will say, oh yeah, I practice motivational interviewing. I motivate my clients to change all the time. And when I hear somebody say that, I motivate my clients to change, a bell goes off in my head, kind of a warning bell. Sure. Yeah. And I know that I've received feedback in my travels that I have used statements like, I have to get someone to do something, or I have to get them to want to go or do or whatever. Uh, So I was fortunate to have a, a guide and a mentor let me know that I use terminology that still in my head of thinking, I must have had some notion that I had some responsibility for people's motivation to change. And it, it took a while for that to shift mm-hmm. some practice. And, mm-hmm. and we'll talk all about that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that I've heard workers say like, you know, well, I share a lot of educational information with the person and that's what's motivating them to change. Or, you know, I've given them referrals to this particular thing and that should motivate them to change. And to me, that actually has nothing to do with motivational interviewing. That's, that's really, in some ways, I'm wondering, and, and tell me if you think this is too strong, but in some ways, that's a little bit more about the writing reflex and kind of centering the worker or the provider uh, that the provider feels like, well, you know, the way I'm supposed to help this person or motivate them is, you know, educate them, give them the answer, give them referrals. Not that information isn't important, not that referrals aren't important. But ultimately, those necessar- aren't necessarily the things that are going to motivate somebody to or help somebody find their own motivation. Yeah, I think it's worth repeating that it's, it's normal, it's natural that we have this desire as humans to want to help people, to want to heal them, to want to fix it, to want to change it. And especially for those of us who are in the helping professions, came to the table thinking that's our primary job or goal Mm -hmm. is to get people to change or to motivate people to improve their lives or their functioning. Mm. And motivational interviewing is not about getting them to do it. It's about guiding them. And it's actually about quieting that writing reflex Mm -hmm. to invite them into this collaboration and conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to also let the the clients or the person who is uh, seeking help to let their motivation actually rise to the top and to invite that motivation into the conversation so that the person can really motivate themselves to move toward a particular change so so maybe like myth number 1 mm-hmm. is MI is not a way to get somebody to do what you want them to do. Right. We don't use it to manipulate people to make a change that we think they should make. Right. Maybe myth number two, uh, when you're practicing motivational interviewing, it's your job to motivate the person to change. Mm -hmm. And repeating what you said, perhaps myth number three Mm. 
when you give people education and information about the harm and or the good that they can uh, do to make a change hmm, is not what motivates people to change. Generally not. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that doesn't mean that there aren't instances where information or, you know, all that is very helpful, of course. Uh, but there is a way to do that in an MI consistent, in an MI mm-hmm. consistent way. Right. And when we've talked about the spirit, you can do it in an MI consistent way and honoring their autonomy and choice that even when you give them the information, education, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. they still can choose to do something or not do something with it. Right. And you, when practicing motivational interviewing, are supporting that autonomy. Right. And creating a space for that person to exercise that autonomy. I just hear a lot uh, of folks from the myth from the myth side of the coin, Mm -hmm. giving information, educating people, talking to them about concepts, and then walking away feeling good that they offered them this uh, plate of morsels and Mm -hmm. then get surprised when they don't take them or eat them or use them. Uh, So that kind of balance of giving information and then getting frustrated that the person or frustrated and, oh, what didn't I do? Or what did I do? Putting mm-hmm. the onus on ourselves as the helper um, that they didn't take what we had to offer them. And, and I could say that over time, when I let go of that, I don't know what you'd call it, feeling thoughts control over thinking that I had some something to to do, to motivate. It was my job to motivate someone. It really freed me up to, to not think that I had something that it's not about me to -hmm. motivate someone. It's Mm -hmm. freeing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you were describing the morsels and, and you were describing how like the workers kind of like head scratching about like, you know, why aren't they eating those morsels or, or why (laughs) aren't aren't they taking those actions that I, that I came up with? Uh, you know, it's interesting to me because the thought that immediately came to my mind was that's where then the labeling can happen where the person, where the worker might say, you know, out of frustration or confusion might say, well, this person's just resistant. This person's not ready to change. Or unmotivated. Or unmotivated to change. Absolutely. And the wonderful thing about motivational interviewing is it's saying and providing the opportunity. And I think this is, this is where sometimes it's really an adjustment for people it's sort of saying you can set that sort of morsel driven agenda aside and focus on understanding where this person is and what's important to them at this particular moment. And what morsels are already on their plate without making an assumption that a person comes to the table with nothing. Right. Right. Which also touches on the idea too, Amy, that I think is central to motivational interviewing, which is kind of holding the belief that that individual has the capacity 
to actually make a change if that's what they choose to do. Right. And that they have it within themselves. And what do we do with that? How do we, mm-hmm. how do we navigate that? Mm-hmm. And how do we engage it? Mm-hmm. You know, and bring it sort of out. I don't know if there was ever a time, and I'm trying to articulate it for myself. You're you're really good at at uh, summarizing some of the things that I have to say about it. But there was a time when I understood these concepts and may not have truly believed it in my heart yet, because mm. my behaviors were um, still feeling like I had responsibility to help fix change the people that were coming for service. Um, and I don't know what clicked, but there, at some point it clicked. And I think I heard you say that you hear the language that people use and are like, Whoa. And now when I hear people say, I have to get people to do something, I hear mm-hmm. the same thing that I used to say in, mm-hmm. and just that whole shift. When, when did it shift? Cause it's not, and you know, Bill Miller says it a lot. It's not just, um, it's, it's a heart set. It's not just the mindset. So mm-hmm. I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but mm. <laughs> changing my thoughts helped. I think watching how it, am I works when mm-hmm. you're curious about people and really listen with the intention to understand and, and draw, draw from that person, the morsels that they have within them, mm-hmm. um, that it's, it's less frustrating. It's less stressful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And probably the outcomes are are more effective in terms of that a person probably uh, can actually move toward change. The client can actually move toward change and uh, feel like they have a collaborative partner to help them do that. I think, in the, I think it was the last episode I was talking about having a conversation with somebody that I was really familiar with. And part of me, because I care very deeply for this person and know what they're going through, Mm -hmm. part of me thinks, I know exactly what you need to do (laughs) to make this better. And I'm laughing because it's so silly for me thinking that way. And it still comes up for me, that Mm -hmm. writing reflex kind of thing. Well, I've had subsequent conversations with this person And we don't always have that wonderful opportunity to hear what someone's going through. And some of us do when we work with people for over a long period of time, but in a short period of time, I've, I heard this person talk about some steps they were taking Mm. to make some changes in their conversation and relationship, just to leave it generic enough, because I don't remember the details of what I shared last time. It was, it was really neat to hear that they had the morsels within them. I asked them some questions about what was going on and how they did it in the past, things mm-hmm. of that nature, mm-hmm. and was able to hear this person with almost a spring in their step, mm. like a, a softness in their voice about confidence, about doing something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what motivated them to get to this point, I hope that my desire to not want to fix it 
helped mm -hmm. because I was accepting this person where they were. And in my heart, I did believe somewhere inside them that they had what it took to get through whatever they were getting through. Mm -hmm. You know, as you described that, it, it really made me think that you honored what they brought to the table and you were curious and probably used open-ended questions to find out more about what was important to them and what they were bringing to the table. And the more they talked about it, the more their motivation increased and maybe their confidence as well. Yeah. See, you do have a nice way to summarize this. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when I had a thought, it's not always a judgment. People think judgments are always negative, but I had a thought about what might be blocking this person. And uh, in one aspect, and, and I asked permission to mm. share, to share what I observed mm. and put it on the table and, and ask them what they thought. And they said, oh my, you know, I, I don't just do this with this particular person. I do this all, all the time in my conversations with people. Hmm. And I said, what do you think about that? Right. So open questions. What do you, what are you thinking about that? Instead mm -hmm. of saying, I think this blocks you from, I just said, you know, if it's okay, I could share what I noticed in this exchange with this person. Mm -hmm. And I shared what I saw. Mm -hmm and left it. I sat there and left. I could have said, and I think it's blocking you. I didn't add that part, even mm -hmm. though it was in my head mm -hmm. and just said, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that that was a, a pivotal thing to being able mm -hmm. to ask permission mm -hmm. to share what you see mm -hmm. and let them have the opportunity to digest it and tell you if they, if it fits or not. Yeah. And to invite that conversation, their reaction to what you ask permission to offer feedback about. So, Paul, what do you think about when people then don't seem to take the morsels? They, you don't hear them move in a direction or even talk about moving in a direction for change. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I, I think what we're kind of talking about is we're talking about how we can be in partnership with somebody to kind of get an understanding of where they are. And again, you, you painted a picture before of the worker sort of conceiving of their job as to offer these morsels and to support this person to carry out the instructions that were given them, which is very different than say the worker saying to the client, you know, what are your thoughts about this? Where are you with this? What do you want to focus on? What's most important to you at this particular moment? And then sort of providing the space to let the person respond to that. And, you know, some people are in a place where they can identify a particular change they may want to make. Not everybody is in that place. And even if they're not in that place, 
it doesn't mean that they're resistant. It just means where they are at that particular moment is they're not able to articulate a particular change that they may want to make, or they, or they're, they're ambivalent about a particular change that they are considering. And again, that's a tremendous opportunity with motivational interviewing when a person is ambivalent about a particular change. One of the key ingredients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also know that we can reflect back the things that we're hearing them say about change specifically, Mm -hmm. and they may talk themselves into change sooner than we or they would even have anticipated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you say that, are, are you specifically referring to sort of the change talk that they may offer? Because as, as part of that ambivalence that they're sharing, they're going to be talking about their desire to make the change, maybe their ability, their reasons, or their need to make the change. And they might also be talking about why they don't want to change, which would be the sustained talk. Right. And that would be normal, right? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. In the example that I shared about the conversation that I had with somebody close to me, um, I intentionally listened for the change talk, desires, mm-hmm. abilities, reasons, and needs. And at first, it was interesting to navigate because the person was talking about wanting other people around them to change more than their own reactions or their own behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it was navigating in there about asking them what what did they want to see differently, right? So in my mind, I would think, oh, Maybe back in the day, get frustrated that, oh, you want everybody around you to change, but you don't want to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and just softening that thought process and judgment about it and being able to explore with mm-hmm. hearing this person wants something to change mm-hmm. and seem to believe that everyone around them had to change, not them. Mm-hmm. And because they hold or express that quote unquote sustain talk, it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not motivated. It doesn't mean that they're resistant. It right. simply means that that's just another part of the ambivalence. And MI provides a safe place for the person to talk about why they want to make the change and why they don't want to make the change. Mm-hmm. So we want to attend to the sustained talk. We don't necessarily want to encourage it and invite more, but we don't want to judge it and and consider it as bad or negative either. Right. And what I think, I mean, I don't have the recording or anything of the conversation. What Mm. I think happened was honoring what they were sharing about Mm -hmm. their frustration, about other people around them, not doing what they wanted them to do Mm -hmm. and exploring the other side of that sustained talk, Mm -hmm. meaning asking this person, what did they want to see different? What did they hope? What did, what did they see their, um, what they could do or what they've done in the past? I think that that was some key things Mm -hmm. in exploring potential change talk. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So again, you know, this idea of that the sustained talk is going to be normal. It's part of the language of ambivalence. It, it's it's probably going to be part of a conversation where we're we're focusing on a change. We can allow it. We can provide space for it, and we can attend to it, and we can actively pursue exploring the change talk and inviting the person to offer elaboration on the change talk, summarizing the change talk, reflecting the change talk back specifically so the person can hear it again. Yeah. I'm just really, it really highlights that it's an opportunity when you hear sustained talk, it doesn't mean lack of motivation or it doesn't mean resistance. Like you said, that it's an opportunity for us to explore the opposite is the change talk there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, like we were saying that ambivalence is a key ingredient to the practice of motivational interviewing. And with ambivalence, you're going to get sustained talk and you're going to get change talk. And we want to attend to both. We want to employ the change talk, but we want to attend to both because we may, as the person continues the conversation, we may start to notice that there's more change talk than there is sustained talk that the sustained talk begins to diminish, it may not completely disappear, but there might ultimately be more change talk, which again is a sign that the person is actually building and increasing their motivation. What does softening sustained talk look like to you sometimes? If you could share some examples. Yeah. I think for me, softening sustained talk, I think of two specific things when I think of that. One is that if I'm going to include it in a summary and I would make an intentional choice, I would include it in a more general way as opposed to a specific way. And I would include it at the beginning of the summary and I would conclude the summary with much more specific change talk. Okay. So that's one way that I would soften it. And again, I I would intentionally choose to do that because I would want the person to know I was attending to their whole story. And I would, I would want to be intentionally emphasizing by placing it at the end and being more specific, the change talk. Another way that softening sustained talk might, um, play out for me if I, if I were in a conversation and it was present is that I would certainly be attending to what the person was saying, paying attention, letting the person know. And if I were going to follow that with an open-ended question, or if I were going to follow it with uh, some sort of reflection or summary, I might intentionally do that in a way that links it more to change talk than finding out more about the sustained talk. It makes me think of that image. And I, I can't remember who I heard say this first, but the idea of you get the dog you feed. So if you start find, asking questions and, and asking the person to elaborate with about the sustained talk, you're going to get more sustained talk. 
and the person is going to stay where they are. If you, if you invite the person to elaborate about the change talk, you're going to get more change talk. So those are, those are two ways for me. What about for you? Nice. And that's really helpful. Um, because to me, when you said, when we use the term softening, sustained talk at first, I would do it by almost ignoring it. Mm. And I got feedback that we don't want to totally ignore it. Like you said, tend to it. Mm -hmm. We don't want to ignore it because we don't want the person to think we weren't listening to them. Right. Right. So I think similar things is, and I liked your um, description of generalizing it instead of specifying it. So I had, I was thinking about it as you were talking that I don't um, get into the details of the sustained talk. I might honor that, yeah, making this change is hard. At the same time, uh, you're really thinking about different ways to go about something, right? So adding the change talk towards the end. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was just a, a shift for me at some point when getting really good feedback from someone about, you don't want to ignore it. Mm -hmm. You want to soften it. Mm -hmm. So really doing more about cultivating the change talk and, and testing the waters to see if there's more there. Oftentimes I get curious too, that if someone's talking more about sustained talk, I don't want to ignore the fact that I think there's no change talk there. I want to test the waters and throw, throw out, maybe offer a double-sided reflection and, and put some potential change talk or the opposite of what they're saying on the table mm -hmm. to see if it's, if it fits, if it lands for them, if it's there, mm -hmm. not to plant it in them, but mm -hmm. to see if it makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. So, so you'd kind of be operating on a hunch that you would include that to kind of see, like you said, to test the water. Mm -hmm. Like the person I was talking about mm. um, kept talking about, I, I, I wish this person would do this. I wish they wouldn't do that. I wish they would stop doing this. I wish they would stop doing that. And, and just really externalizing their conversation, wanting everybody else around them to change. And my hunch was that I could explore this person's potential to want to make some changes themselves because they said nothing about making their own changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it wasn't there. It wasn't there for me to reflect their um, expressed words or language. It was there underneath, I thought, mm -hmm. by they wanted something to be different. Mm. And I went with that. So softening the sustained talk didn't ignore that this person was really frustrated with other people for not making the changes. And you really, you really wish your relationship was different, or you really wish this situation mm -hmm. was better. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's the hunch that that's gotta be underneath what's motivating them mm -hmm. to continually talk about wishing these other people or other things would be different. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I kind of want oh. it, it. It does, and I'm wondering, given the example that you give, if you could, if you could sort of give an, provide an example of what specifically you might have said, which is, and you've you've kind of done it, but I'm wondering if you could 
if you could share sort of one more example of like you're honoring the sustained talk and you're testing it with the change talk kind of at the end of the, the reflection or the summary that you're making. Sure. Um, something that comes to mind and I, I, again, I don't have the recording, but I, I know that I explored a lot of the feelings that this person was having and may have said something along the lines of this is really painful for you. And you're thinking about maybe some ways that you could lessen your own pain. So starting mm -hmm. around that, because mm -hmm. this person was talking about a, a painful situation mm -hmm. and that it was ever these other, this other person, these other people around her were making decisions that were painful. Mm -hmm. um, so testing the waters out that way, mm -hmm. honoring the pain. Um, so I think you're, conversation about generalizing the sustained talk mm -hmm. instead of saying, boy, that really, that person really hurt you, right? That mm -hmm. might infuse, you know, add some fuel to the fire. Right. Um, and instead reflecting on the pain mm -hmm. that's really painful. And you really would like to see maybe consider ways you might make some changes to make it less painful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you used a word earlier, and I want to underline this word because um, I thought your example really uh, is such a good example of this, is the idea of honoring what the person is saying, mm -hmm. you know, where the sustained talk is just as much part of the, the experience of ambivalence about a particular change. And again, you softened it. And you ended the reflection with the change talk. Right. Yeah. So that's usually how I would navigate. Mm -hmm. Softening the sustained talk is similar to what you said about the summary, putting it first and then adding the potential change talk, mining for it there afterwards to see if it sticks, to see mm -hmm. if there's something there. Mm -hmm. You know, Focusing on change talk for a minute, it, it mm -hmm. really reminds me of the idea that we want to employ change talk that comes out in the conversation. And yes, there's, there will be change talk that will happen of its own accord naturally. The person will, will talk about their desirability, reasons, or need to want to make a particular change. And of course, we can ask intentional open-ended questions, we can reflect, we can summarize to evoke more change talk. But I do want to underline this idea of that when change talk occurs, it's important for the worker to actually do something with that change talk so that the person can hear the change talk again, or it's offered back to them in a summary, because ultimately, if you don't attend to the change talk, it's the person is not going to really be able, they're not necessarily going to be um, guided toward increasing their own motivation for a particular change. So some examples of what we can do to not 
just leave it there. I think you'd say leave the change on the table. <laughs> yes. Change talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't leave the money on the table. <laughs> Don't leave the money on the table. Don't leave the change. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Don't leave the money on the table. So, so things that we could do is to respond mm-hmm. with reflections, summaries, absolutely. absolutely. Maybe some evocative strategies to see if there's more there. Yes. Yeah. What other things are you thinking about what we can do? Yeah. And, and with that evocative strategies, just sim- keeping it simple, just asking, inviting elaboration about mm. the particular change talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just in keeping with this example, when I followed up with the person, uh, I, I was shy, in a sense, tiptoeing, not wanting to um, bring it up again as if it's my agenda because I did want to see how things were going. Mm. And um, I wasn't in therapy with this person. I mentioned this is a person that's close with me. Mm. And I I asked generally, um, so how are things going? Now that could have gone anywhere. <laughs> the weather is great. I'm ready for Christmas, whatever the conversation was. Uh-huh. Um, and the person knew that I was checking in about the particular situation because it's been a quite stressful one. And, and this person said... Uh, you know, I'm really focusing in on changing this behavior. I said, oh, that's interesting. And how is, how's that going? How's, how has it been? It's only been a few weeks and since we had talked. And uh, they said, uh, well, it's not very <laughs> easy to change. <laughs> and shared how they fumbled around and learned even more about themselves by realizing that their behavior was no longer helpful for them in Mm. getting through this painful situation. So it was just interesting. Um, You know, there wasn't a magic wand that voila, this person started talking about making a change in their behavior that they're going to do it and everything's going to be better. Mm. You know, and at the same time she said, yeah, it's not easy and I'm very aware of my behavior. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you adding that because it, it really underlines and and I'm sure anybody listening to this, um, if you stop and really think about it, you know, change for anybody is not easy, generally speaking, and and even sometimes specifically speaking, it's not easy, and it's a process mm-hmm. and that it, it, it's not like you have one conversation and the change happens and we move on. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that you use the term, you know, fumbled around and through mm-hmm. that, you know, fumbling around the person that you're mentioning found out more about themselves. Yeah. And, and again, they are in their process of change. And exploring what's inside themselves and from a strength-based perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was another intention um, that I had when I was talking to this person, because a lot of the conversation was around what can't happen, what won't happen, um, which could spiral anyone into a a state of inertia or lack thereof. Mm Mm-hmm speaking from motivation or unmotivated, um, that asking 
questions around what could happen, what might happen. How did you handle the, these types of situations in the past? When were you most effective? Mm -hmm. So asking strength-based questions, exploring the strength that I heard by reflecting back what I heard, um, I, th I think was a little powerful in, instead of focusing on just the problems. Mm -hmm. How are you going to fix this? How are you going to change this? Right. Seemed uh, daunting. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had mentioned before that when you had a, subs a subsequent conversation with this person, that their confidence seemed to have increased. So the idea of like focusing on strengths, helping a person to realize that they have within them their own morsels <laughs> that they can leverage and use to move toward a particular change can also help increase confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, Amy, before we conclude, because this conversation is about motivation mm -hmm. and, you know, I've heard sometimes workers out of frustration and out of caring say, you know, well, you know, this person's just not motivated. They don't want to do this for themselves. They're doing it because somebody outside is telling them to do it. Mm. And I'm also thinking about, you know, folks who are mandated to care or to services. And, and I'm wondering if, if maybe we could conclude our conversation with just talking a little bit about sort of what approaches we can have there because, because somebody's mandated to services, because somebody is uh, considering a change because of somebody outside wants them to do it, also does not mean that somebody's resistant or not motivated. So from, from an MI perspective, what are your thoughts about how we can, or what we would focus on or what we could uh, work on with folks who maybe come into the conversation at that starting place. So, so two myth busters are coming into my mind. Okay. The one is, uh, maybe we've said it already at the beginning that myth buster one is really believing that people have it within themselves to change. Mm -hmm. And I only have two myth busters. I know we talked maybe about three or four myths, but the the second myth buster is around this notion of what you're talking about when people are motivated by external forces or external reasons, um, believing that they made a choice to do something about it, even though it was not intrinsically motivated at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And we know, and science tells us that people change just as well when they're motivated extrinsically. It's then what do we do when they show up. So I think from the perspective of what can we do, some of the things are things that I just said about the conversation that I had with this person that I care about is number one, believing that they made a choice to come and honor that and, and let it be known in the space. You know, you're really considering there might be some merit to making some change mm -hmm. or there might be some merit in what people are saying that 
you chose to come to explore it with, with us, right? So mm -hmm. these collaborative, honoring their autonomy kind of language mm -hmm. and focusing on the strength that they mm -hmm. came. Mm -hmm. You showed up. You showed up. Mm. Um, you know, oftentimes I remember early on in my career in substance use disorder treatment, uh, I worked with a lot of folks mandated by external forces and the, the conversation was very assessment like, mm. what did you do? Why did they send you here Right <laughs> to explore what was, what was related to substance use disorders? Right. So I was trying to assess, mm -hmm. you know, and not start out of the gate with, well, so you, you decided to come and, and explore what's, what's in it for you, what, how this might help you. You know, a, a thought came to my mind as you were saying that, which is that I think it can be very helpful to communicate to somebody that we're a collaborative partner by allowing them the space to talk about either their frustration or maybe why they don't want to be there, even though they showed up. And, and not getting too worried that that means that the person's resistant or not motivated. Because let's face it, maybe they don't want to participate in this program or this particular conversation. And maybe they need to say that in order to get to a place and, and know that the person is hearing them before they can get to a place where they can maybe begin to explore what could potentially be in it for them. You know, I, I don't have the particulars, but Bill Miller just wrote a book uh, around this whole notion of ambivalence. And it's interesting to hear, uh, I'm reading it, to see the, compartmentalization of ambivalence and making a decision. So I could be making a decision on whether I'm going to Disney or going to go to the Grand Canyon. So there's some ambivalence there. I'm not sure which one, but those are two good changes. Those are two good things. Mm -hmm. And then there's, I have to decide to make one decision or not make the decision, maybe not good or bad, uh, has other people involved. And, and I don't have it all articulated well. And, and to this point of people being extrinsically motivated by external forces, sometimes come to the table and have to make a decision between two not so good things. Mm -hmm. So this is not whether we go to Disney or the Grand Canyon. This is, do I go to jail or do I go to treatment? Mm -hmm. Do I keep my family intact? Uh, or not, because I have to give something up. They're, they're not always two, they're two negative things that someone is making a decision about. Mm -hmm. And it, mm -hmm. tough decisions. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're making some sort of choice. And that's a strength. Right. And validating that and softening our hearts to understand 
what a tough choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of the, you know, the old fashioned way of there's the door, you made your choice or saying not so nice things about, mm. well, you decided to come, so you might as well buckle up and <laughs> mm. head to IOP and, and go to treatment mm -hmm. instead of really honoring in your heart that this was not an easy choice for someone to make. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that would really be accurately reflecting back to the person, the reality of their choice. Right. And that, and that's where the empathy really comes in and the compassion. Right. Yeah. So what are some things that you've been thinking about with navigating folks that come extrinsically from external forces? Yeah. Uh, again, my way of thinking about that is, is whatever it is that's motivating them is, is, is potentially, um, a, a positive thing. I, I have, you know, I have heard people say at times, and I, I'm thinking of a particular case where somebody wanted to quit smoking because of family, because of a family member. And I remember the worker saying, well, you know, this person's never going to quit because they don't want to do it for themselves. And again, I have compassion for that worker because the worker acknowledged that they had quit smoking and the process that they went through to quit smoking and how they had to do it for themselves. So there was this sort of projection onto the client that, you know, unless they were going to kind of do it the way I did it. And again, I think the, the strength of motivational interviewing is that if we accept whatever it is that's motivating this person to consider this change and we stay in partnership with them, we're going to find other things too. So we don't need to judge something just because it's extrinsic. Right. And that the way we made a change, even if it's very similar to a change they're making, like you said, uh, I stopped smoking this way. So therefore this person is, you know, going to fail because they, I failed that way too. Uh, makes me think of a person in recovery who recently said, wow, it's embracing this notion of harm reduction that, that the federal government has recently endorsed said, you know, for, for many, many, many years, I just thought everybody had to go abstinent or bust mm -hmm. and we're in, in the same notion, just exploring with people that there's so many paths to change. There's mm -hmm. so many ways that motivate people, mm -hmm. whether it's initially external um, and maybe that external motivation is what drives them to continue on for a while mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to make and, a change. And, you know, uh, I appreciate you bringing in harm reduction here because similarly, you know, harm reduction is, is a viable and an MI congruent uh, goal. People mm -hmm. can choose to lessen their harm and that's a change. Right. I, and again, if you support a person to do that, as opposed to try and force them toward abstinence, you have a greater opportunity of having an ongoing conversation with them. And who knows where their harm reduction goal may go. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I think we naturally use harm reduction approaches for less stigmatizing things in our lives. You know, like a person says, you know, I'm going to start with just cutting out carbs. That's where I'm starting. And that's what I'm going to do. And we don't send the list out and shame them for not changing all the other things or getting up and exercising and doing things to change their health. We support that and say, good for you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and affirm their decisions. And it, it is so motivational. It, am I congruent to honor any change that, honor anything that the person is choosing to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anything that they're considering. Right. Because again, it goes back to that ambivalence. The ambivalence indicates, yes, as part of that language, there may be sustained talk. And there's also something they're considering. And it's that thing that they're considering. It's that side of the ambivalence that has the potential to grow into something that actually will help the person move toward the change. The other part of it is going to be there. That's part of the change process. You know what? As we are wrapping up around this notion of language around ambivalence and motivation as an umbrella, I, I think about behavior change that I have made over the years and sometimes haven't made over the years. And, and I'm thinking of one particular behavior change that I can get in my own, trapped in my own head about telling myself I'm unmotivated when in, indeed I'm, I'm motivated most of the time. Mm. And I make attempts to do things and change things. Mm -hmm. And on the day or the moments or the weeks that I don't do it, doesn't mean I'm unmotivated. I'm still motivated to make this change. I'm just thinking of one in particular. Mm -hmm. I'm motivated to do it. I'm just not taking action right away. So really exploring motivation from the perspective of someone's engaged in the conversation about what they potentially might do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just because they're not yet taking full action, I think from that whole harm reduction approach, they're taking some action. Yeah. And, and people move toward action and, in, and even before they move toward action, they move toward deciding what action they might want to take in terms mm -hmm. of the planning. Like, you know, I think if I'm going to move in this particular direction, now that I've talked about why I want to move in this particular direction, I'm now starting to think about to move in this particular direction. These are some of the things I could do to move in this particular direction. And now that I've identified these things that I could do, the first thing I'm going to do is this. And, and I invite folks to think about their own change process from this perspective, and I'm thinking of times when I, over the years, I've made a lot of changes around health. I'll just generalize. And I've learned a whole heck of a lot about what wasn't working, what didn't work, what won't work. I've gone swimming with people. I've gone running up hills and two of those things I won't ever sustain making change because I don't like to swim for exercise and I don't like to run up hills. So 
really knowing that the people that we're working with and partnering with to explore change and to consider what they might do, um, continue to explore it because they're testing it for themselves as well. That's at least what I got out of my own thinking pattern in this conversation that uh, people are testing what, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're considering that what's going to work for them, what isn't going to work for them. Right. Absolutely. So I wonder how you'd like to wrap up this notion of motivation and our conversation around the language of ambivalence. Well, I think one of the key points, which we stressed at the beginning, is that it's not the worker's responsibility to motivate somebody when practicing motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. MI is engaging in a collaborative conversation to help the person to explore what change they may want to make and to find out what may be motivating them. So that's one sort of key point I would, I would underline again from our conversation. I think it's worth underscoring again, too, to wrap up that really thinking, do you believe it? Do you believe it that people have it within themselves Mm. to make the change, to consider change? Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate talking to you about this today. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to Episode 9 of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. Join us for Episode 10 when Amy and Paul chat about MI spirit and the writing B-flex. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassatt Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassatt.org.